Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to confess something to you today. I'm afraid I didn't come up with a sermon for this Sunday. Instead, I came up with 26 sermons. So settle in. We're going to be here for a while. Okay? Now, really, in all seriousness, um, this text from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and all of the stuff that it evokes, it is so rich with images and signs and symbols. It's so complex with all the various layers of history and theology and so forth that I was really struggling this last week to come up with just one direction to go in, one thing that, that I thought maybe you really needed or wanted to hear. And so the other night when I was struggling to fall asleep, which often happens when I'm really kind of wrestling through a text, getting ready to preach, uh, I decided to to try and organize my thoughts, and maybe that would help me go to sleep, because, you know, that's what preaching is for. It's a cure for insomnia. So I was working through it, and I decided that I would try and come up with one image or story or, or idea from this text for each of the 26 letters of the English alphabet. And it wasn't hard at all. So we're going to try something a little bit different this morning. Um, I've never done this before, but hey, it's the end of August. What's the worst that could happen, right? I have in here 26 pieces of paper, one with each letter of the alphabet. And you, it's going to be kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. Some of you are going to get to pick letters from the, the bowl, and that'll help determine what direction we go. Okay? Everybody cool with this? All right. Raise your hand if you want to be the first person to draw. Fantastic. Adam, here you are. You can't look. Are you sure? I'm just kidding. What letter is it? X. Actually, I'd kind of rather it was X, but... uh... All right. S. S is for sacrifice. Um, This is a, a tough one. It's a tough one because this text evokes that whole complex system that that took place in the tents in the wilderness that then eventually became the temple in Jerusalem, that place where the priests did this work of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And somehow this, this sort of offering system, this burning of animals, this slaughtering and offering of blood, somehow that helped the people heal their relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get that all the time. Anyone else have a little trouble understanding what that sacrifice thing is about? I mean, for me, it just seems so kind of ancient and arcane. It's, it's as if, like, God is some sort of bloodthirsty vampire that can only feel better if he gets to drink the blood of an innocent goat or lamb or bull. That's just weird to me. And that language of sacrifice, especially in the book of Hebrews, it it works its way in then to the story of Jesus, too. That somehow Jesus is a sacrifice. That in order for God to feel better about you, someone had to die. And that someone who had to die was God's own son. 
What a strange story to place at the, at the center of our identity as Christian people, that in order for God to feel better about human sin, God had to kill his own baby. Anyone else a little troubled by that? Well, as we dig more deeply into this conversation about sacrifice, this understanding of, of how God and God's people are made right with one another, it's important to remember that central to the story of Jesus is that Jesus wasn't just some guy. He wasn't even just one child of God. But that indeed Jesus is God's own self. The story that we tell is that Jesus is God wearing human skin, slipping into the fullness of humanity being God with us, Emmanuel, right? Which means that whatever happens at the cross, whatever that sacrifice is, it's God doing the work. In in, in a sense, it's God saying, I don't need goats and bulls, and I certainly don't need dead children. What I need is for you to know how desperately and deeply I love you. And so I will take the spot. I'll go to that place of death, that place where we heap all of our brokenness, all of our stupidity, all of our failure to be who God claims and wants us to be. God goes there, takes our place. And on the other side of Good Friday, rises from the grave so that never, ever again, never again, will we ever feel that God needs some gift of blood, ours or more often our neighbors, in order to feel whole. For the relationship between us and God has been healed, has been covered over, once and for all, by God's gift of God's own life. And that, that is really good news. Enough? All right, who's next? Brother Ken, be cautious. What do you got? F. F, all right. F is for furniture. Right? I mean, come on, people. 26? F is for furniture. No, it was going to be fire because you know how much I love fire, but, you know, whatever. So, furniture. As we just did with the kids a few minutes ago, uh, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews does is introduce us to all of the furniture of the sanctuary, right? All of the stuff that was around. Now, furniture is important, Right? If we didn't have furniture, you all would be either standing or crouching or laying on the ground, and that would really up the ante on you falling asleep or having a really bad backache at the end. So furniture is important. And indeed, in both the outer tent and the inner tent, the the place of the holy place and the holiest of holies, there's furniture, right? There's stuff there. And that stuff is helpful. It's beautiful. It's adorned in gold. 
It plays both a, a practical purpose, right? A lampstand shines light, but it also has a theological importance, which we'll talk about if anyone draws L, okay? But here's the thing. Furniture, in and of itself, is not holy. Now, how often do we get invested in furniture and imbue it with sort of specialness, holiness, and forget what stands behind it, what the purpose was in the first place? When I was in seminary, my wife and I had a couch, And we came to call that couch the crying couch because we had lots of friends who um, went through breakups and uh, a friend of ours lost her father to cancer while we were in seminary. And our, our apartment just came to be this place where people would come and sit and cry. And we would, you know, get them drinks or feed them food or just sit and listen. But it was the, the crying couch. And one friend of ours in particular came over a lot, the one whose father had died. And we, we came to, to just love that spot, right? that, that piece of furniture. Because it, it was this place where an incredible relationship was forged in the midst of, of tragedy and sympathy and care for one another, and indeed tears. Well, that couch was a sleeping couch, right? It, it had a bed inside of it, which meant it weighed like 9 million pounds. And so when we moved away from Chicago, we couldn't afford to put it on the moving truck. It was just too expensive. So uh, we actually traded it for some Cubs tickets on Craigslist. It was awesome. (laughs) We don't have the crying couch anymore. But that doesn't mean that the relationships forged in that place no longer exist. It doesn't mean that we no longer can be people of compassion, people who meet one another in shared suffering and brokenness. You see what I mean? You know, every once in a while, we talk about things like pews and chairs or the color of carpet or or which instrument is better to play worship music on, right? Or whether we should drink out of one big cup or lots of little tiny cups that the altar guild has to wash or any of the other furnishings appointments that we have as a part of our traveling band of worshipers. But what's important is to remember the spirit behind it all. This was especially important for the people hearing the the story, the, the sermon of the book of Hebrews, because all of their furniture was gone. Scholars are fairly unanimous that by the time the book of Hebrews was written, the temple had been destroyed by the Romans. They couldn't have that lampstand back if they wanted. But that doesn't mean that God was no longer with them, traveling with them, being with them, pouring God's self out for them, yearning to be in relationship with them, to meet them in shared brokenness, to find healing in life and love for all. Enough? All right, one more. Yeah, we'll see. If it's easy, maybe we'll have another. All right, fantastic. I don't want that one. Okay, no, just just kidding. <laughs> oh, 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 you can't look, can't look. Okay, what'd you get? Okay, ah, okay. Um, you know what? Yeah, we can go there. Um, 
we kind of we kind of covered this. I didn't promise that they wouldn't overlap a little bit. But K is for killing. Um, sorry. Uh, again, um, so much of the ritual life of God's people centered around this elaborate ritual of killing things in order to somehow be purified. Scholars are a little mixed about where that all came from, but it, it, it's plausible that, that most of the people surrounding the Israelites as they emerged as a religious community, that most of the other folks around them also practiced some kind of ritual killing as a way of expressing the divine relationship, a way of somehow appeasing the gods or winning God's favor, etc. And it's possible that a lot of the neighbors killed children, you know, sacrificed virgins. This is the stuff of, you know, Indiana Jones. And that perhaps one of the reasons that the, the sacrificial system, the sort of animal system grew up among the Israelites was as a reaction to that, that, you know, we don't believe in a God who wants us to kill people. And so if blood is necessary, we'll spill the blood of goats instead. Still a little gross, but let's, let's all agree it's a little bit better, right? Well, here's the thing. Even though it was never a part of our ritual life together to kill people, to sacrifice children, the reality is it has always been a part of our ritual life to sacrifice our children or to kill the children of others. For all of human history, we have somehow come to the conclusion that that in order for us to get ahead, in order for us to be better, somebody else has to die. For me to be safe, my neighbor can't be too close, or else blood will be spilled. And again, this whole system by which we heal ourselves by hurting others. Now, this system breaks God's heart. God doesn't want any child of earth to die, especially not at the hands of a violent mob or to be bullied into submission. This isn't the God who pours God's self out for us in bread and wine each and every week. This isn't the God who chooses to be born among us as a vulnerable baby in a barn. This is a God who longs for us to be at peace with God, with ourselves, with our families, with our neighbors, and with all of creation. And so whatever happens with Jesus, one thing is for sure. God says, enough. No longer do I want my people ever again to spill the blood of their neighbors or themselves, but rather to rest with one another in peace. And God has made it so. One more. Something that doesn't have anything to do with blood, please. (laughs) All right, Brother Bill. Oh, fantastic. I knew I could count on Bill. All right. 
O is for the Omer of Manna. A few weeks ago when we were talking about the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness and we also paired that with the story from Exodus of God showering the people with bread from heaven, manna, they woke up in the morning and said, eh, what is this? And then they ate it. We talked about how manna is this incredible gift of unadulterated grace. That the reason we know that it is unadulterated grace is because it is abundant and it's there, and no matter how hard you work, whether you work really, really hard at gathering a lot, a lot, a lot, or whether you're tired or heartbroken and don't get very much, no matter what, it's measured as an omer, and everyone gets one omer. Enough for the day. No more, no less. Now, the other thing that's really magical about this manna stuff is that you get one omer for one day, and at the end of the day... Whatever you don't eat, you just throw out. You can't keep it. Because if you do keep it overnight, it gets all wormy and mealy and rotten and stinky. Why? Because God wants us to live day by day by day by God's grace. If you get to hoard it and keep it for yourself... Well, eventually, if you, you know, plan accordingly and invest properly, you might end up with a big pile of manna, and then guess what you could do? You can buy and sell your neighbors, hold it over them, right? You get powerful. You get rich. That's not God's way. And so you get one omer for the day. On Friday night, you get two uh, so that you don't have to go work on the Sabbath, so it can, it can hold out for two days without rotting. But come Sunday morning, if you have any left, it's worms. What an incredible thing God has done in giving us this sheer gift of grace that is equally poured out in mercy for all, right? So because this gift was so powerfully wonderful, gracious, and merciful, God instructed the people to keep one omer, one day's worth of manna, and to keep it in the ark, that beautiful golden box that held the Ten Commandments and a couple other trinkets from their time in the wilderness. And so, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, there in the Holy of Holies where the ark was kept, where the very presence of God was to be found, where the mercy seat was, In that box, together with the Ten Commandments, God's covenantal relationship with us was a jar of manna, one omer, so that no matter what happened to the people, as they were camping in the wilderness, or as they settled in the Holy Land, began to build cities, began to get rich, began to get powerful, began to build temples, no matter what, always at the heart of their worship life, in the very center of who they were, they would be reminded of that gift of sheer grace poured out from the heavens while they were in the wilderness, that daily offering of God's abundance that could not be hoarded, but could only be received. Now, when the temple was destroyed, the ark was lost. And indeed, only Indiana Jones knows where it is. And with it went the omer, the jar of manna. 
And it may be in part because of that that occasionally God's people forget. Forget about God's abundant mercy and grace, sufficient for the day, shared fully, equally among all. And yet, we don't need that jar of bread, for indeed, we have bread from heaven. Each and every time we gather, we are fed by God's abundant grace, poured out on this table, broken so that we might be made whole. And everybody is invited, and everybody can eat, and everybody gets the same amount. Sometimes it's a little bigger, but you know what I mean. We all share this meal. A meal given to us by God's abundant grace. That's the point. That's the point of all 26 sermons in the bowl. That's the point of this, this whole story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Was to break open once again the mystery of God's abundant grace. So that as we continue to move through our lives and through the history of the world, we might know that we are never, never, Never more than a word, a nibble, a sip, a splash away from God's abundant mercy and grace poured out for you and for them and for all of creation. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.